Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, tonight, our show topic will be Why is the Venus Project not communism or socialism? Um, I am sorry that it took me so long to get back to having a show. Aside from all the real-life issues that had gone on, I actually spent a lot of time researching into this topic so that I could really know what I was talking about. Um, And uh, I have a few things that I want to bring up uh, before I get into that. And um, I also have two panelists, and I'll be bringing them on shortly. But um, there are a couple of trends that I, I wanted to talk about that are going on in the Zeitgeist movement that I would like to address right now. And one of them it's not just the zeitgeist movement either. It's, it's the larger aspects of the freedom movement. And that is that uh, the issue of global warming or uh, climate change or whatever it is, or tell you, whatever you want to call it, has been starting to polarize the movements, um, not just ours. Um, there are a lot of people, for example, you know, they either do believe in global warming or they don't believe in global warming. And so what ends up happening is if you happen to be one of those people who doesn't believe in global warming, then you find yourself turned off by anything that the person says after that. And unfortunately, like, you know, basically they've mentioned global warming at all. And the reason that I have a problem with this is that you end up, like, in some cases discrediting people who have a lot of other very good things to say. And to be honest, um, for the most part, the majority of the solutions that are offered to global warming by people who actually give a damn, you know, real activists who care, are not solutions that we would oppose in the Venus Project, like uh, not polluting, um, creating efficient, you know, energy using renewable energy rather than, you know, fossil fuels. These are all good things, and we have to remember that when we're dealing with these people. Um, like, for example, the, the lady who did Story of Stuff recently did a, uh, another video called Story of Cap-and-Trade because she believes in global warming and she doesn't think cap-and-trade is the solution. But because of the fact that she even talked about global warming, there's all these posts on YouTube from people you know, talking about how now that discredits everything that, you know, the story of stuff said. And I think that's really wrong, and it's the wrong direction to be going, because there are a lot of people who could be our allies that we're alienating over this issue. My belief on the issue is that I'm not a scientist, and I think that there's money to be made on both sides of the issue, and therefore we're not going to get the real story on global warming anytime soon. And in the meantime, unless these people are actually advocating a new tax on, you know, on CO2, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> it's okay. They can believe whatever the hell they want, but let's not alienate people who could be very good for our movement. Um, you know, people like, for example, the people from Story of Stuff. You know, I use the Story of the Stuff video all the time in my activism because it's only 20 minutes long, and she does a really good job of addressing the issues of you know pollution and destruction and imperialism, and she does it in 20 minutes, and she's very you know very pleasant as she does it. So um, that's just one thing that I wanted to get out of the way. Um, I'm actually, this next topic, I'm going to do a whole show on at some point, but it has to do with uh, one of the major reasons I don't think a lot of people understand that why we've been focusing more on getting the message out rather than building things um, is that um, I don't know how many of you people have been keeping track of the, uh, uh, the legislation that's been passing through Congress, but there's a little thing called the Homegrown Terrorism Act. And what the Homegrown Terrorism Act is about is uh, basically trying to find ways to identify causes of homegrown terrorism, and they they are using the Internet as an example of uh, places where this comes from. And they act like it's an epidemic, like people are just blowing themselves up in mini-malls everywhere, you know, in the the way that this is uh, described. And if you remember not long ago, one of the things that they focused on with that guy who uh, blew himself up in that army base was that he was 
reading about radical Islam on the Internet. Now, the reason that that bothers me is that in the text of the Homegrown Terrorism Act, they're, using the, they're basically saying that the Internet is a source of terrorism and that people get the idea to become terrorists from the Internet. Now, when you couple this with the fact that officials are already telling people that if you happen to find a copy of Zeitgeist in somebody's car or in their house, that you should definitely be watching them for terrorist activities. No, that's not a lie. It was posted because it was in the news not long ago. Um, we have to be very careful. We are only going to have this kind of open access to the Internet for so long. If you really believe that there's going to be a big problem, you know, as far as like the quote-unquote New World Order or the elite or the Illuminati or whatever we're calling them today, um, trying to stop us, uh, then the time is now uh, for you to get the message out. Because after fascism takes hold, you're not going to have those opportunities anymore. Think very heavily about the book burning and you know, all that other stuff that went on when other fascist regimes took over. And keep that in mind when you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to be worrying about passing the message out. I want to go build something. Well, we need to pass the message out to as many people as possible now while it's easy and it's not going to stay this easy. Okay. Um, with that said, um, I apologize for the brief tangent. Um, those, those two items have been bothering me for a while now, and I think that they're creating a lot of um, uh, strife in the movement. Uh, and I like, there's a thread on the Zeitgeist Movement forums about that global warming thing that's like 30 pages long, and I'm like, oh my god, just stop already. <laughs> so what? Some of these people want to switch and change to renewable energy. That's awesome. Let's do it. You know, um, the, the worst that could happen is like it'll be another excuse to get people off of fossil fuels. I'm certainly not complaining about that. Um, and so aside from any new taxes, I don't have a problem with it. If, they, if, if they're going to get off of fossil fuels because uh, you know, they believe it's for global warming, whatever. Great. No problem. You know, believe whatever you want, but don't actively discredit, alienate, start fighting, calling each other names over that issue because it's just another division. And that's exactly what they want in this movement, division. We don't need to be any more divided. We're already divided. They're like All these little freedom movements and their own little ideas are all divided. They don't work together. They all fight like we're, you know, cats and dogs about this crap. And it's the reason why we are not really a threat to them. Think about that. Would you rather be standing next to a guy who believes that global warming uh, you know, might be causing this and therefore he wants to go to get off of fossil fuels or, you know, would you rather be dealing with the fascists who are just going to basically split us up, round us up in the camps? Because when this is all over, all these freedom-minded people are going to be in the same camps. <laughs> You're going to be sitting next to the same, you know, this guy who believes in global warming is going to be sitting next to the guy who doesn't. Meanwhile, the people that you're actually concerned about are going to be laughing their butts off. Did you see that? While well, those guys are busy paying attention to the argument about global warming, we were taking their rights away. Just something to consider. Believe whatever you want about global warming. The vast majority of people I've seen that have argued about it are not scientists, and I've seen the arguments on both sides, and they both have merit. Yes, there are a lot of scientists who say global warming is a farce. In many cases, those scientists also work for the oil companies. There are scientists who said that global warming is real, you know, you know, it's just, it's, it, there's basically too much motivation on both sides of it. And that's one of the things that we're striving for here in the Venus Project, is to have good research based on no monetary gain. So, anyway. Well, yeah, okay, to respond in the chat room, you would rather be like someone who knows it's global warming fraud, but, you know, but wants to clean up their act. But 
in the end, um, somebody who is maybe uh, going on board with the global warming thing but still believes that corporations are bad and pollution is bad and uh, you know the elite are bad is still my ally. We can argue about global warming when we have our own meteorology and weather you know, degrees. Then you can talk about that. Until then, what you have is a whole bunch of what Jacques calls half-assed opinions. And that's what everybody has. We have a bunch of amateur people talking about this and quoting what they read on the Internet, written by other people who have their own agendas, whether it be good or bad. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, is that we can step past this and move on to something else. Now, um, all that being said, um, I'm going to pull, pull on my panelists so that they can introduce themselves. We have one new panelist who's never been on, and one panelist who's been on several times. So I'm going to call on the newcomer first, um, Crickets All. Go ahead and key up your mic and introduce yourself and tell them how you learned about the movement and where you're from if you want to, and then I'll move on to Paradigm. Oh, I've more or less just ended up stumbling onto the movement. I've been thinking of there has to be a better way to do things than what we're actually doing. I was always a weird kid, so... Uh, but, yeah, it's me. Um, cricket oil. Okay. Um, all right, Paradigm. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, V, and... Um I want to say that I do agree with you as far as the, uh, the global warming uh, ideas that you're presenting here. And I mean, you have to take things one subject at a time. And I do think that it's really a shame when you, know, you have people that disagree with each other about something, and then what ends up happening is the one person, you know, looks at the other person's stuff and just takes one thing. For instance, let's say they don't agree with global warming, and the other person says that they do agree with global warming and then everything else gets discredited, that's, that's not the way things should go. Um, but I do also think um, a little bit differently than you about the fact that we should be arguing about it, we should be talking about it, but that's for another show perhaps. We could probably talk about that another time. My big issue is, like, for example, do you agree at least that Annie Lennard from the story of stuff is still a valuable asset to our movement and that if she happens to believe in global warming, who cares? Yes. Okay, that was my point. <laughs> but anyway, bearing that in mind, I know a lot of people came here to uh, uh, to listen to this stuff about um, you know, comments. Somebody in the chat room said something, a lot of paranoia. The U.S. government is shutting down the Internet, arguing on people who watch Zeitgeist and all that. Um, both of the things that I just quoted you, like, for example, about the U.S. government shutting down the Internet, is all available on the, the government websites. They're not saying they're shutting down the Internet yet. But the Homegrown Terrorism Act and its actual language is all available on the .gov websites. You can look that up yourself, read it. You know, I, I didn't get it from Infowars.com. I didn't get it from Alex Jones. Okay? I read it myself when I was running for Congress. Okay, and um, you know that that was just something I wanted to get across to people. But in any case. Today's show, we're going to talk about the blog post. Once again, um, for those of you who uh, want to get ahead of like the, the, uh, the what a shows I'm going to be doing, I'm going to try to do a blog post about every show that's not just like a guest. So unless it's a guest, you're going to see a blog post about the topic in question. As in typical, we will read from the blog. Um, I've started up a private chat room for the people that are on the show, so if they want to make a comment on anything that I have read so far, then they can basically ping me in the private chat and I'll say, okay, well, it looks like X person wants to say something. So that's the format that we run with here. 
Once again, everybody, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Um, it looks like I actually have a caller. Let me grab him now. Caller, you're on the air? Hey, V, this is Joe. How are you doing? Oh, hey, Joe. Did you just call to listen in? No, mm-hmm. actually, I've um, lost the settings for getting into the uh, the chat room that you gave me. Is there any way for you to give them to me, or do I have to get them privately off the air? Um, the chat room should just be, if you go to the page, the show page, then you should be able to get in that way. Now, you know the settings for the Ventrilo sauce. Oh, Ventrilo. Okay, yeah. yeah, as far as Ventrilo, yeah, it would probably be, um, if you go to the Zeitgeist Movement website, uh-huh. and then uh, go to Communication, there'll be like a little drop-down menu, okay. and Voice Chat is one of those options, and that'll get you into Ventrilo. No, I'm using Ventrilo, but the, there are settings that allow persons to get inside the chat room. If you don't have those particular settings, you can't get inside the chat. Are you... The Ventrilo chat room? Yeah. You should just be able to hit the chat button on your gray box. From the website itself, without the Ventrilo no. software? Are you talking about the Ventrilo chat room or the Zeitgeist Movement IRC chat room? The Ventrilo uh, software, the Ventrilo uh, chat room. Okay, that's what I was asking. So you have Ventrilo. You're saying you don't have the the IP address and the ports anymore? Yeah, they got it wiped out. Yeah, you can find that. You can find that on the Zeitgeist Movement website in the same place. If you go to the voice chat section, you'll okay. find it there. Okay, thanks. No problem. Thanks for tuning in again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. That was Joe. Uh, he's one of my listeners, actually, who's a libertarian who now also thinks that the uh, Venus Project system will work as well. This show is uh, scheduled to go for an hour, um, but it, I will probably end up going longer than that because it will probably take me longer than that just to read it. Um, and uh, when that happens, you guys, the, the live show will cut off, but you'll still be able to get it in the archives. Once again, thank you for tuning into V Radio. Um, if this is your first time listening, uh, you can go to v-radio.org. That's v-radio.org with a hyphen between V and radio. Um, there you will find links to my uh, archive shows. I also put up a link now on the front page there to VTV's Must See TV. It is a link to another Zeitgeist Forum post uh, that will basically give you a list of free-to-watch documentaries that I think are vital to understanding the problems that we have today. Um, and so you can go there for that. If you want to donate to V Radio, we're now down to like, let me say, I got $81 out of 100 for the month of December. Uh, so I think we're like $20 left. Um, you can go to the chip-in widget that is there on, um, that, that you can get to either through the link to my blog. There's one there. There's one on my MySpace. If you'd like to donate to V Radio through any of those other means. Otherwise, if you go to the V Radio website, you know, there's a link basically donate to V Radio, and it gives you all the options there. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting me. And um, let's get this show on the road. All right. Monday, December 21st, 2009 was when this blog post was made. Why is the Venus Project not communism or socialism? After several requests by listeners to talk about the differences between the Venus Project and communism or socialism, I have been researching this topic for some time. This is also why I have not done any radio shows yet this month, as there was a lot of research that went into this. I wanted to be very sure that I knew what I was talking about. First of all, let me begin by talking about Karl Marx and his vision. I read the Communist Manifesto to be able to understand the direction he was considering. I feel that he had his heart in the right place, and many of his observations about the problems of capitalism are right on track. Let's go over a few issues. Mind you, 
I didn't just read the Communist Manifesto. I also did a lot of other studying on Wikipedia and various websites. But because like I had somebody earlier ask me if I just read the Communist Manifesto, I just wanted to clarify that. Now, take a quick sip of water, and we'll get into this. There we go. Ah, fluoride does a brain good. Most of Marx's work talks about the conflict between the, I'm totally not going to pronounce this right, burgios, which basically is a word for the ruling elite and owners of the main, what was that? It's bourgeois. Bourgeois. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Paradigm. Uh, the conflict between the bourgeois, which is basically a word for the ruling elite and owners of the means of production, and the Help me, Paradigm. I'm going to ruin this one, too. <laughs> was it a pro uh, proletariat, or as Orwell called them, the proles. Okay, proletariat, which is the word for the working class, the people who actually do the work. In his descriptions of these struggles, he details how the elite exploit the working class and always seem to end up sitting around most of the day working money just because they happen to own some land or factories while the workers sweat and toil to make money for them. Now, from the Communist Manifesto, in proportion as the bourgeois, <laughs> i.e. capital, is developed in the same proportion as the flariat, the modern working class developed a class of laborers who live only so long as they find work and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers, who must sell themselves piecemeal, are a commodity like every other article of commerce and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition to all the fluctuations of the market. He goes on further, the average price of a wage labor is minimum wage, i.e., that quantum of the means of subsistence, which is absolutely requisite to keep the laborer in bare existence as a laborer. What, therefore, the wage laborer appropriates by means of this labor merely suffices to prolong and reproduce a bare existence we by no means intend to abolish this personal appropriation of the products of labor, an appropriation that is made for the maintenance and reproduction of human life, and that leaves no surplus what wherewith to the command of the labor of others. All that we want to do away with is the miserable character of this appropriation under which the laborer lives merely to increase capital and is allowed to live only so far as the interest of the ruling class requires it. That's the end of the quote. Now, this basically talks about how in the capitalist system, the people who have all the money will give us a share of it in some way, only, only if it bring, in some way brings profits to themselves. And when they do so, they are only inclined to do so enough to keep the laborers in a state of living that permits them only to always be dependent on the labor to be able to survive. We are wa while we're watching this happen today as labor unions lose their power to do much about outsourcing and automation, Marx's, Marx's points are made even stronger when you take into account technological unemployment. Technology's power to put people out of work was, was tiny in comparison to what it is now. And as Marx points out, the elite are only inclined to employ people so long as it is profitable. Marx further goes on to attack private property in such a way that I believe many of us in the Zeitgeist movement would agree with. Quote, you are horrified that our, um, at our intending to do away with private property, but in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those nine-tenths. You reproach us, therefore, with intending to do away with a form of property, the necessary condition for whose existence is the non-existence of any property for the immense majority of, of society." End quote. Marx here basically exposes the utter hypocrisy of the capitalists to say that there is some sort of 
freedom being taken away when communist socialists take private property away from the elite. The real motive behind capitalists defending private property is defending their right to exist as a few who get to live lavishly thanks to the work of the many. More quotes. Quote, the lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, this is basically in reference to small businessmen, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on, and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. Now, and quoting there, this statement pretty much blows a huge hole in the free market capitalist theory that small businesses will be able to compete with large corporations. This statement above is kind of the crux as to why the notion that competition alone will prevent monopoly is absurd. It talks about technological unemployment. Some of the arguments that were used to debunk Marxism were valid before technology achieved what it is today. Now that's basically, I went on a further comment on that, and that is that, because it occurred to me after the fact, is that a lot of the arguments that were made against communism were more relevant before technology was where it is now. Um, you know, if, for example, it was much easier to start your own business or be an entrepreneur before. It's getting harder and harder every day. Um, and so like a lot of what Marx is saying, just like, like a lot of what the technocrats said, if you guys remember the show I did about debunking that book that was supposedly saying that, you know, technological unemployment was a fallacy. You know, a book written like the 40s said that technological unemployment was a fallacy, but it was quoting mostly books from the 1700s, was that back then they were pretty much right. You know, the, the technocrats were panicking a little bit too fast, but it doesn't change the fact that virtually everything that Marx just said is what's going on right now. Now, move on with problems with Marxism. Now, Marx had an incomplete, incomplete idea from Wikipedia Karl Marx never provided a detailed description as to how communism would function as an economic system, but it is understood that a communist economy would consist of common ownership of the means of production, culminating in the negation of the concept of private ownership of capital, which referred to the means of production in the Marxian terminology. Now, this lack of detail left the idea wide open for interpretation and therefore corruption. I will get into some examples of that corruption here. Let's take the example of Soviet Russia. Now, in implementation, when Marx envisioned how, social, how the socialist revolution would come about, he initially figured it would happen in the most advanced capitalist countries. At the time of the revolution that took place in Russia, the conditions were certainly not in line with this criteria. Once again from Wikipedia, in Russia, the 1917 October Revolution was the first time any party in an avowedly Marxist, with it, I'm sorry, with an avowedly Marxist orientation, in this case the Bolshevik Party, seized state power. The assumption of state power by the Bolsheviks generated a great deal of practical and theoretical debate within the Marxist movement. Marx predicted that socialism and communism would be built upon the foundations laid by the most advanced capitalist development. Russia, however, was one of the poorest countries in Europe with an enormous, largely illiterate peasantry and a minority of industrial workers. This kind of a setup, basically, this kind of set up the system to fail from the beginning in these conditions. Resources were already scarce from the start. This is the reason that Marx generally figured that his system could work best in an already advanced capitalist country, which could then convert its resources to the new system. Now, what that basically I'm getting at is, is that Marx was kind of countering that a country that already had a really good infrastructure could convert itself to communism and then therefore could handle it. And instead what happened in Soviet Russia is they tried to just go directly into it without having the proper infrastructure in place. 
So um, as I'm like only now at the beginning here and I want to kind of give my people a chance to have an opportunity to talk, I'm going to pull on my panelists to talk about everything that we've said so far. Um, I'm going to start with you, Cricketall, since you're the newbie. Um, do you have any comments so far on what I've read? Well, it seems like a lot of it would also be thievery. That'd be about the only thing that I could come up with. Thievery meaning? Uh, the only real way to survive in any system, Marxist or otherwise, within monetary means, is thievery. That's about the only thing that I could come up with right now. I don't even know if that has anything to do with anything. Okay. Um, paradigm? Yeah, I, I, I see Marx as somebody that had a, you know, I think, like, like you said, I mean, his, uh, his general thesis is one that actually I support. I mean, his, his intentions, at least. I mean, the man wasn't somebody that wanted, you know, massive amounts of uh, inequality or anything like that occurring. I, I just think that uh, it's one of those situations where possibly, maybe he was like ahead of his time. I mean, during, during the time that he was alive, I just don't think that it was feasible, uh, techn technologically feasible and um, feasible in the sense of, of being able to replace human labor. He was, you know, in order for his ideas to work, basically, it would still require human beings to be subverted somehow. I mean, they, they had to kind of, um, you know, especially the proles, the proletariat, they had to basically give up certain parts of their, of their livelihood, of their lives, and, and give up that part of themselves for this strictly technological, you know, resource that you call labor. They had to provide it still. And I think that's one of the problems. And, you know, in terms of how this is different from something like the Venus Project, obviously the idea in the Venus Project is not to kind of divvy out the labor and everyone does a certain amount or whatever. It's, it's actually to eliminate the labor, especially the completely meaningless labor that, that just, you know, no one gets any sort of satisfaction out of, no one appreciates it, it doesn't challenge them, you know. So that's totally different than socialism or communism in that case. Um, and, I mean, you know, there's a, you, you were also mentioning how one of the flaws of capitalism that he pointed out was that you're not going to have this kind of mom and pop, small industrial, um, you know, communities or, or, or companies or whatever comes springing up out of nowhere. Um, and the reason is, is, again, because when you have one giant corporation that can totally automate something or, or, or do something much cheaper because they've simply got huge numbers. You know, when you get huge numbers, it's really easy to, to start, you know, cutting, off, cutting, up, cutting down on prices a little bit so that you can be really, you can totally outcompete the little guy and, uh, you know, do the Walmart thing, basically. And a, a really interesting documentary that I just saw about this, actually, is called Pig Business, where it shows how this uh, um, concentrated feeding operation, animal feeding operation, um, basically, in, in North Carolina, started getting... Uh, bought up by Smithfield Foods, and then there, the vertical integration came into place where not only were they growing the pigs, but they were also doing the processing and everything. Um, and, and, you know, they just totally wiped out all the competition, and it was to the point where they had 85% share of the market for, for pigs, at least for pork stuff. And what ended up happening? Well, in the United States, legislation went into place, and they said, no, you can't do this stuff. This is ridiculous. You're, you know, not only are you poisoning people and all this stuff, but you're doing uh, – you're doing a bunch of other environmental damage and, and, and so on and so forth. So we want you to not do that anymore. And then what happened? They just, they just outsourced it and they went to Poland. And now, actually, they're trying to go to Romania. And what do they do in there? Same stuff. They're basically just totally destroying everybody um, in terms of the, uh, the mom and pop or the, uh, the local family farms or whatever. And that's pure capitalism right there. And that's exactly why 
it'll never work. It's because it works only for that one company that ends up just gobbling everything up. But what ends up happening is the standards drop. You know, the, the products actually drop in, in, quali in quality. They drop in price, too, but they drop in quality. And then the, the big elephant in the room is the externalities that you don't take into consideration. You know, the fact that people that live near the factory, they have diminished health. The fact that the people that are eating this stuff, they have to deal with the antibiotics that are in there. They have to deal with all the stuff that, you know, goes into the, the factory farming um, mechanism. And, you know, who pays for that stuff? Where does, it, where does that, you know, go into the equation? It doesn't. You know, so that's one of the huge flaws in, in, uh, in, in, in capitalism. But the way, that, the way that the Venus Project or, or a resource-based economy would deal with this is by taking those, everything into consideration. All those externalities all of a sudden become, you know, variables in that equation of are we doing things the right way? Is this feasible? You know, and if it's not feasible, then you don't just, like, pretend that it doesn't exist and you just keep polluting or whatever, you know, and just deny it to the authorities or something like that or, or find a way to just pay a fine for it. You actually have to deal with it, you know, and that's, that's a huge step in, in, in the right direction because otherwise you're not progressing. All you're doing is just painting something with a different veil or something. You know, it's, it's ridiculous in my opinion. But. Right. And, you know, basically I, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, he, he did also mentioned that I didn't really get into in this report was that he talked about how uh, the, the capitalist system seems to like spread kind of like a virus. It's like after it gets into a city, you know, it slowly makes people more and more dependent on it. Um, you know, less and less people can live a rural lifestyle, you know, and then he talks about how, you know, basically he, he basically hints at all the things that the economic hitman talks about, about how, you know, big companies, if these things along that line will go into a place, put all the lesser people out of business, you know, because they can't possibly compete with them. And then that results in those people having no choice, but to then turn around and become wage slaves later on, in, you know, in the factories in the cities. And I, I find it interesting that he, he talked about all of that, and it was kind of predictive of the future. It may not have been as true at the time, but it's certainly true now. You know, and that's, uh, that's something that I, I look at it, and I basically see that um, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's very telling that these people were talking about this stuff you know, at that point, you know, and that it's, it's basically coming true now. Now, did you guys have anything further, or should I read further? Yeah, actually, just one quick thing as well. I, I, you know, I, I was also just recently listening to a podcast with, um, with, with uh, Stephen Zarlinga, who's uh, the, uh, one of the founders of the International, I think it's the Monetary Institute or something like that. He's got a lot of feedback there. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, at any rate, he was talking about, Know, people saying that uh, he's another one of these people that are into, is into monetary reform, and he was talking about the fact that one of the solutions. Uh, I really appreciate him because he, he definitely points out that you know getting on the gold standard or you know going back to silver or something like that is totally ridiculous. And his solution is kind of similar to Ellen Brown's solution, which is basically you know let's not have a Federal Reserve that's private. Let's let's not privatize any of the anything that has to do with money. Let's make the government deal with it. And you know. They get, he said that he got some heat from people, and they're like, oh, that's just socialism or something. And he points out, look, there's certain things that you can't just, like, you know, paint something with a word and, and say, therefore, it's bad. You know, oh, that's socialism, therefore. Look, the, the police, the fire department, you know, I mean, there's plenty of things that are, quote, unquote, socialist. And, and yet no one seems to really point out, like, oh, my God, that's horrible. I mean, do you want things to be for profit, you know? So another thing that I would be wary about is to just, it's not even that bad for certain things to be socialist. I mean, and, and that word itself is so nebulous. It can mean so many different things. 
and and so it's like there's 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 the socialism in principle that certain ha- people have in their head where they they think that it's just something that's destined to be wrong or bad or whatever and inherently it just is a failure and then there's the common sense approach which is like okay what is the definition of socialism what does it actually mean and why is that actually bad and is it actually bad if you apply it to one specific thing or, or is it actually bad if you apply it to everything I mean how does it what's the uh I mean, how can you dissect this? And, and I think a lot of people don't even think about these things. They just, like, latch on to buzzwords, and they just assume that because somebody said that something resembles socialism or, or appears to be socialist, that it, it just must be bad or something like that. I, want, I, I think just as uh, similarly to the point you brought up earlier about how if somebody argues for or against global warming that someone else can just totally dismiss the rest of their arguments, that's a bad thing. I think it's also a bad thing to just latch onto like buzzwords and just, you know, oh, it's, 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 it's socialist, so it's bad, or oh, it's capitalist, therefore it, it must be bad, or it must be good, or whatever. I mean, unfortunately, capitalism in general, in my experience, I mean, there's really nothing that's actually beneficial to it because it just breeds this kind of non, um, non-lucrative, non-cooperative kind of competition. But uh, nevertheless, I will still not dismiss something just outright as being capitalist. I will say why that is bad. I will say it is this and this is why it's bad rather than just it's this, therefore it must be bad without even, without even having like two brain cells working in unison trying to actually understand why I think something is bad, you know. I, the buzzword thing just really bugs me. I totally agree and we're actually going to be getting into that uh, later on here because uh, we're going to be talking about um, one of the things that the communist system did to protect itself uh, was propaganda. and. Any system, really, that's trying to hold in does the same thing. There was all kinds of capitalist propaganda about the Russians, too. You know, and that's that buzzwords you're talking about. It's basically it's the effects of propaganda. It's like a mental war. We need to make an idea sound bad. It's like you can say socialist now in many circles, and it's an insult. You know, it's like calling somebody a racial slanderer or something. Um, even though, I mean, it, it, I, I don't agree with everything they're doing. It doesn't change the fact that in many cases, these people are people who care. You know, they just have a different approach. That's not a reason to, like, talk down to them. So um, let me go ahead and uh, continue reading unless you guys had anything further. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Um, Now we're going to move on to uh, what ended up happening in Russia was a series of problems often seen on a smaller scale in communes. You cannot take the capitalist infrastructure and just decide to share the already flawed system and expect it to work. Now, what I mean by that is in reference to if you don't address the scarcity problem, if you don't you know, address the, the issues of um, you know, basically really concentrating on automation and the things that you know, fix all of the problems that even exist, even in an advanced capitalist system, um, you're still going to fail. Now, now, you also cannot expect people to volunteer to do messy jobs. The whole system depended entirely too much on labor with very little incentive. Now, um, what Marx wanted to see was what he called a dictatorship of the polariat, which I know I'm saying wrong, which basically meant rule by the working class. This was never actually realized in Soviet Russia and is generally never realized in any other communist socialist state. Some sort of harsh regime always convinces everyone it is necessary before such a great world will, where everyone gets a say in their lives can truly exist, kind of like the pigs and animal farm. This ruling class starts off on the right road, but eventually as the limitations of resources become clear, the people who are in charge of their distribution tend to find themselves in the position of making sure they are on top. This is what critics and former citizens of Soviet Russia referred to as the nom- um, this is a Russian word, so bear with me, nomenklatra. 
Who were the nomenclatra? Well, they were basically the pigs from Animal Farm who changed the rules from all, un all animals are equal to some animals are more equal than others. For those of you who have not read or watched Animal Farm, I will define it further. From Wikipedia, the nomenclatra were a small elite subset of general population in the, of, of the general population of the Soviet Union and the other Eastern Bloc countries who held various key administrative positions in all spheres of those countries. Activity. Government, industry, agriculture, education, etc. The nomenclatura was analogous to the ruling class, which communist doctrine denounced in the capitalist West. So basically, you're looking at a group of elites who choose and appoint themselves. If you want into this exclusive club, you have to be sponsored by somebody already in it. And once you're in, your continued livelihood is utterly dependent on that sponsorship, as you could always be replaced. That's not an exaggeration either. That's how you get into that elite. Go ahead, Paragon. Were you going to say something, Paradigm? Sorry, who do you think represents this nomenclatura today, this, this uh, uh, you know, definition that you're given right now? Neoconservatives, uh, just basically the people who are still running things now. That, that's See, I would say, I would actually say, that's, that's possibility, but I would actually say it's the non-governmental organizations because they're the ones that are self-appointed by definition. See, the, the whole idea of non-governmental, it's a good thing in some cases because it means it's, people that are just genuinely interested in this stuff and they're trying to work outside of the confines of the, of the government and not trying to, you know, be right or left wing or anything like that because there are serious issues like environment. But, I mean, if you look at, you know, other, other non-governmental organizations like the CFR and, and so on, I mean, they are actually just self-appointed institutions. And that's the whole purpose. The, the, these people have money, they have power, they have the ability to organize and so they start defining the rules by which the world basically functions. And they can do so under the guise of this non-governmental organization title. And that's, in my opinion, where you find this, uh, this phenomenon today that's, that you just described. Yep. Did you have anything, Krikathal? Yeah, so pretty much that I'm just going to call it the Russian word. Uh, so you would consider that uh, more like the bankers and the... Uh, Wall Street people? Well, that's not really the right word um, because basically, although it is in that, like, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that the nomenclatura of whatever is basically the people that in our country are purchased by the banks and the corporate interests, okay? We're talking about the, the good old boys club of people who always end up somehow being the ones appointed to power. Um, virtually everybody who gets to say the final round of the presidential elections, uh, the kind of people who get appointed to major positions of power. Um, for the neoconservative movement, it was like the Karl Roves and the Donald Rumsfelds, you know, those people who always seem to just get recirculated. Um, like uh, Donald Rumsfeld was in like three different administrations. Dick Cheney was in like multiple administrations. Karl Rove always seems to be standing behind somebody in the White House. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that, that select group of people who always seem to just be moving in a revolving door between corporations and, and government. Okay, I get it now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, uh, once again from Wikipedia, because a client, I mean, this is basically somebody who you sponsored, that's what I was going to say, it, it's not an exaggeration. Quite literally, you had to be sponsored by somebody else. There was no democratic election in the Soviet system, at least for that, basically it was just like a matter of if Dick Cheney wanted you in, he would sponsor you and then you'd be working for him. And that's how you would get into this part of the government. And that's how it functioned over there. Now, 
Let me read from Wikipedia. Because the client was beholden to his patron for his position, the client was eager to please his patron by carrying out his policies. The Soviet power structure essentially consisted of groups of vassals, clients, who had an overlord, the patron. The higher the patron, the more clients the patron had. Patrons protected their clients and tried to promote their careers. In return for the patron's efforts to promote their careers, the clients remained loyal to their patron. Thus, by promoting his clients' careers, the patron could advance his own power. So what do we have here? Just nobility under another name. A bunch of elites stacking the leadership of the country they are leading to ensure they are always on top. Now, before the capitalists declare victory, I would point out that in the strongest capitalist country on this planet, that being the United States, the situation is no different. We are just better at hiding this fact under layer, or, uh, basically in layer after layer of political donations and favors. In the communist system, your direct superior was your sponsor. In the capitalist system, corporations are your sponsors. Um, and as Sean is pointing out in the chat, the mafia. <laughs> uh, in any case, these people were widely seen and resented by ordinary citizens as bureaucratic elites that enjoyed special privileges and that had simply supplanted the earlier wealthy capitalist elites with just business as usual. Now, when this system, just as any other system, starts to have problems, it turns to fascism. Even though it is, that is entirely against the core concept of Marxist beliefs, just as it was with the theory against the founding fathers of the United States beliefs, um, but we still end up with things like the Patriot Act. Um, now, once again from Wikipedia, Western criticisms of the Soviet Union and third world communist regimes have been strongly anchored in scholarship on totalitarianism, which points out that communist parties maintain themselves in power without the consent of the populations they rule by means of secret police, propaganda, disseminating through state-controlled mass media, repression of, the free discussion, um, repression of free discussion and criticism, mass surveillance, and state terror. These studies of totalitarianism influenced Western historiography um, on communism and Soviet history, particularly the work of Robert Conquest and Richard Pipes on Stalinism, the Great Purge, the Gulag, and the Soviet famine of 1932 through 1934. Now, so tell me if this above statement reminds you of anything else. Oh yeah, the capitalist United States. The difference is, as I described before, the elite here in this country can achieve all of this while still maintaining the charade that we are supposedly all citizens of a free country. The fact that the government doesn't officially control the media in the United States only makes them more powerful as the average citizen has no reason to even consider that their news might be propaganda. Now, bringing that up, I'll go ahead and bring the panelists on. Cricketal, did you have any statements? Not really. Paradigm? Just a quick one. I mean, you talked about how the idea was that uh, people have to get elected and they have kind of uh, these these funding structures and all this kind of stuff where the self-preservation mechanism is still in place. And the idea is that, you know, it's people that have to get elected still, even within the, the communist system. And, uh, you know, and you were saying how that's no different than capitalism now. It just is under a different veil, basically, through donations and other types of things that we just, you know, when, you, when we question them, they just say, oh, that's just the way, quote, unquote, things are. That's just the way things are. And you just have to kind of, you know, accept it as like, oh, well, it must be logical then because that's just the way they are. So it must be logical. But, but nevertheless, the difference between those systems and a, and a, and a resource-based economy would be that the core idea is that people don't get elected into anything. It's ideas that get elected. That's the issue, you know, and that's what makes it entirely different, you know, in my opinion. That just makes a resource-based economy totally night and day different is that people don't get elected. It doesn't matter who. It matters what, you know. It matters why. 
And that's, that's a huge, I think that's like a huge step in a, in, in a different direction. And you really don't end up choosing who you actually can elect. So the people who we actually elect, I would think, would be more pulled in as a patsy. Pretty much uh, the United States Mafia. Okay. Um, anyway, so having bearing all of that in mind, uh, I'm getting some comments here from some people in the chat room that they don't think that uh, my statements here are credible because I'm basing some of them on Wikipedia. Now, has anybody on the call, has anybody like in their own studies uh, found there to be anything wrong with anything I've said generally about communism? Does this sound like a pretty good look at communism? Hey, I'll say something. We, we just got done discussing how we shouldn't be like, you know, oh, they don't believe in global warming, therefore they must be wrong about something, or oh, this person's quoting Wikipedia, and we know that Wikipedia can be wrong in some cases, therefore they must be discredited about this. Let's be, let's be mature here, people. I mean, look, yes, these things are on Wikipedia. There's plenty of stuff that's on Wikipedia that's absolutely factual. This happens to be a pretty damn good um, representation of, uh, of the basic tenets of, uh, of, of things that Karl Marx said and of socialist slash capitalist ideology. And, uh, you know, I mean, look into it a little bit more. This is just a small fragment. I mean, you can't encompass all of a concept right now, but as far as what's been said so far, um, you know, especially on, on, your, on your blog right here, I'm reading it myself, I just read it, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty much a decent interpretation. I mean, I, I haven't found anything vastly different than what I've um, looked into. And I'm not a, you know, scholar on this stuff. It's not like I've spent, I mean, I'm more into health and nutrition, but I mean, I have looked at at, uh, you know, the writings of Karl Marx and, and, and socialist slash uh, communism ideology and all that stuff, and I think you're representing it okay. I think it's fine to use Wikipedia as long as, you know, you, you, you double-check and look at other stuff, too, and I think you have. Thank you. All right, well, that out of the way. Um, if anybody would like to call in and weigh in, the phone number is 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. Um, if you'd like to call in and talk about this subject. Um, you're going to have to do it before 9 o'clock Eastern Time because after that the show goes off of live and directly to archives. So um, in any case, uh, I'm going to continue with the blog. Now, um, comparing this system to the Venus Project, similarities. One, we, meaning the Venus Project and communists, both think capitalism sucks. Two, we also agree that private property is a bad idea. Three, we both tend to feel that we should share the resources. Differences. Communism does not focus its efforts on eliminating scarcity. Instead, it kind of assumes that there is enough for everyone. And when it proves to be false, rather than seeking solutions using the scientific method, it just turns to fascism and tyranny. Two, communism fights for the rights or claims to fight for the rights of the working class. We want to eliminate the need for a working class entirely. Three, Communism doesn't address the very real problem that people will not be inclined to work nasty jobs and therefore does not recognize the importance of automation. Four, communism still depends on the concepts of law to keep people in line, and it in fact uh, is very harsh in its pursuit of people who step out of line. The Venus Project feels that we should instead be focused on eliminating the root causes of criminal behavior at their source. The communists also still use prisons as a means to solve this problem, rather than treating people who behave aberrantly as sick patients. Commun and five, 
communism in implementation tends to end up fall, uh, falling into the same traps of corruption. Mind you, if they were actually doing what Marx suggested, they wouldn't have this problem. Six, social stratification is still part of the communist implementation, leading to a new elite all over again. Seven, the communist system still uses money, and as always, this can and does get used as a tool to make sure that some people have more than others. Eight, communism does not utilize the scientific method, and decisions are still made by unqualified statesmen with half-assed opinions on any given subject rather than well-educated experts. Nine, education, at least in Soviet Russia, consisted of a lot of propaganda designed to ensure that everyone was in love with it. In the Venus Project, our education will be rooted in enhancing the critical and analytical thinking of the people of the world so that no one will ever be foolish enough to be taken in by another fascist ploy again. And when problems are encountered, rather than trying to cover them up or attacking people who show that the system is flawed, we will embrace these findings and adjust our society accordingly. 10. Self-sustaining technology should have been the top priority of any society that would try to share the world's resources. In the Venus Project, ideal they would be. In closing, communism and socialism both started off as promising ideas, and I think that if they were implemented exactly as their creators envisioned, they would stand a far better chance of success. I feel that we in the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project could stand to learn a lot from their mistakes. I also feel that we will probably have a lot more luck finding allies in these movements than in the capitalist side of things. Most people seek out socialism out of a true love of the idea of everyone working together and sharing the world's resources for the betterment of all mankind. And we would certainly say that is a step in the right direction. Now, before I uh, bring people on again for conversation about this, I wanted to point out, if you listen to the Living on Purpose video, uh, which, I'm sorry, radio interview, which is still available on the Internet, Jacques Fresco talks about his experience with communism. He went to a communism meeting, and they explained the idea to him, and he was like, well, okay, well, that's a good start, but what are you going to do about all this corruption that's going to take hold? And the guy who was in charge of the meeting, rather than listening to him, said, well, you're deviating from the teachings of Marx, so you'll have to leave. And the guy who was the second, basically the vice president of the meeting, said, wait a minute, I want to hear him out. So they threw him out, too. Um, so basically, um, that, that's the extent of the experience Jacques Fresco had with communism. He doesn't, like, really hate them, but it kind of comes down to the same thing, is that if, the, if you don't treat the root causes of behavior, and if you don't, uh, find ways to you know, cultivate abundance and basically act that scarcity is actually like a, a threat to, you know, the entire human race. If you don't treat it with that much of an emphasis, you're going to continue to run into these problems. So that being said, I'm going to open the floor now to open discussion. If anybody would like to call in, the phone lines are open, 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. Cricket Hall, did you have any further statements? Well, uh, not really. Uh, did we, was all that also socialism as well, or? Well, they're basically the same thing. Um, when I studied about the history, uh, communism is just kind of another way of saying socialism. Okay. Mm -hmm. Paradigm? No, I think the points you bring up about the differences are, are pretty good. That, that those ten points you made, I, I pretty much agree with them. Um, I think that uh, I think that the point about the fact that you're not really trying to eliminate scarcity in communism, rather you're trying to kind of work around it in ways. You're trying to say, okay, look, 
we're not going to eliminate scarcity and we're certainly not going to eliminate labor. What we're going to do is kind of try to work around it and maybe, oh, I don't know, ration it out. Like if we don't have enough sugar or something like that, we're just going to, we're just going to say, all right, well, everyone gets about half as much you know, in terms of the rationing. And that's not at all the idea of, of a, a resource-based economy. A resource-based economy is like, we don't have enough sugar. Well, shit, let's fucking do something about it. You know, it's not like let's just cut it in half and everyone gets a little bit less. And, you know, natu- and, and of course, somehow magically, the bourgeois, right, the uh, people that own the means of production still, uh, which, which still does exist in communism. I mean, as much as you want to try to deny it, uh, you know, that still is the case that there's this stratification. It's just not as visceral or tangible, perhaps, but, you know, somehow they magically just get more than enough for their share, you know, and it's like these, these kind of inequalities still exist, and that's not in any way, shape, or form what a resource-based economy is about. And also, it's, it's a resource-based economy in terms of defining almost everything as a resource. Education is a resource. You know, food is a resource. Free time is a resource. The ability to have clean air, you know, all these things start getting taken into consideration, and you're not working towards just trying to, like, basically get people on a subsistence living where they can, you know, there's this joke that I remember being told by my, by, uh, my I think he's my uncle, and my half-uncle in Romania. Uh, he came to visit one time, and he said, you know, he tells jokes really funny in Romanian, but he said this one joke about how two people are sitting outside uh, in, in, uh, in Romania, and this is an anti-communist joke, but uh, one of them says, I don't get this. How can, how can communism work? And, and the other person says, oh, it's very simple. You know, everything... Uh, to who to who needs based on their need. Everyone, you know, gets provided the provisions depending on what they need. Um, and the person says, yeah, I guess, I kind of get it, but I don't understand. And then he says, look, look over there. See that potato truck? Look at everyone over there. They, they go and they get as many potatoes as they need. And, uh, you know, and then the guy says, well, what if one family needs more than the other? For instance, if they have, you know, more kids, well, then they'll get more potatoes. And he says, well, what happens when the potatoes run out of the truck? And, and, the, and the other guy says, well, there'll be another truck. And then he says, hmm, interesting. He says, well, what if I don't like potatoes? And then the guy says, well, you'll like them. You know, and that, that just kind of encompasses, like, the joke, you know, really well because that's exactly what happens. You're not given opportunity to, to actually enjoy things and enjoy life or have a, have a choice necessarily in communism sometimes or socialism. And so it's kind of like, yeah, that's one of the negative aspects of it. And is that what the Venus Project or a resource-based economy is, is promoting? Absolutely not. It's promoting diversity. It's promoting abundance. It's promoting everything else. It's not promoting, you know, the least, the lowest common denominator. Okay, everyone can live off of, you know, 1,700 calories a day, and if you don't do this and this and this, and if you don't use lights during these hours or something like that, then everything is okay and we can manage what we have. That's not what it's about. It's about uplifting the, the quality of life. And I think Jacques Prisco said that multiple times, and I totally agree with that. The ideas are that you don't just, you know, take what you have right now and kind of figure out interesting ways of divvying it up to people so that they can, you know, barely survive and they have to stand in line or something like that to get their resources. Or No, no, the idea is that access is, is immediate. Access is constant. You know, you, you, you have um, what, what you would call... Uh, um, contingency plans or, you know, you have, like, backup systems. Uh, Peter talked about that with, with respect to, like, uh, you know, you have two geothermal plants in one area. Therefore, if one of them fails or if one of them starts going at a different um, capacity, then automatically the other one kicks in and takes over. You have all these kind of reverse feedback mechanisms and uh, these buffer systems, et cetera. I mean, it's all, it's all based on maintaining this, this elevated quality of life, and that, that's, that's just staggeringly different than, than the communism or the socialism that we find in the textbooks, you know. Why? Because the technology to do this stuff 
to actually uplift people's uh, you know lifestyles uh, wasn't available then, and so that makes it totally different as well. I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I think uh, um, this has been a really good conversation. I'm glad that we had it, uh, and I think that uh, I hope that this gives some people an idea of what it is that we're talking about when the differences. And I think a, another huge difference has to do with that idea that we're talking about eliminating bad behaviors at their root causes rather than depending on laws. Most of the implementations of communism were very authoritarian in the way that they did it. Okay. And because of the way that because of that, you know, like that's why you had like the Stalins who were like infamous, probably as evil as, you know, uh, Hitler. You know, those sorts of people don't even exist in a Venus Project society. We're not looking into any of that. You don't need a KGB running around monitoring everybody because the flaws in your system are making people unsatisfied. You know, you don't need any of that because we're trying to get rid of the causes of those behaviors in the first place. And right. There is no there is no Gestapo. There is no, you know, trying to subvert people's uh, opinions or their right to speak out. These things are invited. You know, opinions are invited and they're, you know, either they're going to be able to be refuted or they're going to be incorporated. They're going to be accepted and said, oh, okay, well, we have to deal with this, then let's do something about it. You know, it's all about you know, getting things done rather than censoring people or whatever. And another thing, it's not nationalistic. You know, every single implementation of communism or socialism in the past has been based on a nation doing it, you know, under the guise of that specific demographic or that specific region or whatever was trying to accomplish something rather than the entire world, you know, kind of implementing this kind of stuff. And it doesn't have to be the whole world um, at once in terms of the transition. But the idea is still not a nationalistic idea. It's not like, you know, let's all, you know, everyone that's Russian, let's bind, let's, let's bind together and strengthen numbers, and, you know, we're all going to rah, rah, rah against our, you know, you know rally, up, rally the troops and get the morale up for us. You know, it's not about that. It's about humanity. You know? And I think, the, I think one of the interesting things, I, I, I would like to research this, actually, is the, uh, what, what Marx and what these kind of early socialist uh, people that profess this, these notions, what they thought about human nature, this idea of human nature, at least. I, I really wonder what they thought, because, right. you know, that's, that's another huge issue, too, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, we have a caller, actually. Caller uh, from the 516 area code. You're on the air. Hello? Caller from 516? I'm going to assume maybe they haven't heard that they're on the air yet. I'll just leave their mic open. But no, you're right. It, is, it would be interesting to find out what these people thought about human nature and if they had really investigated it closely, you know, and if they even really looked into the behavioral issues. Because it seems as though those systems were really uh, dependent on just scaring everybody into, into complying. And if you're going to do that, you're never going to really get – it's like you want to talk about people being stifled, not having incentive. If you're going to run a, you know, a – basically a, a harsh regime, that'll kill the incentive really quickly. So, sure. Um, well, we're now down to the last 90 seconds. I brought the caller on the air. Uh, they haven't said anything yet. I don't know if they even realized they're on yet. Um, but I think we pretty much uh, closed this up. The, did anybody else have any further statements? I'd like to actually just put out a hypothetical that out there just to have people think about it. Uh, I wonder what communism, socialism, or even capitalism would try to actually do about a, a meteorite trying to come at us. I think the Vinius Project would just find a way to move it out of the way instead of throwing money at it.
Yep. I agree. Um, and I think that uh, throwing money at a problem, as we've already proven, doesn't really solve it anyway, because in many cases, the if you don't have the same engineering capacities, this is another one of the major differences. Um, we're actually going to be going off live here for a second. I want to finish my points here. If we can continue the conversation, that's fine. So those of you who are going to be cut off, thank you for tuning into V Radio. Visit v-radio.org. Um, now, uh, basically, um, when you're talking about the, the screwed up infrastructures, there's so much more to the Venus project and the way that we want to approach things than just how you distribute resources in, in, in like the, the normal sense. The price mechanism, for example, doesn't really take a lot of things into account. And it also ends up leaving a bunch of people in the cold. And to me, I don't really think any system that keeps a bunch of people in um, you know, total poverty is, is a system that I feel is, kind of, is, is working. You know, they, they say that it's working, um, but honestly, if, if you have like, that situation where only 5% you know, of the population is doing well and everybody else is like, sucking on it, that doesn't sound like a successful system to me. I mean, what do you think, Paradigm? Yeah, absolutely. And another thing about I mean, you know, capitalism, I mean, especially when you're talking about the monetary system implemented in it uh, the way it is right now, I mean, this inherently means that you're going to have massive amounts of jobs that are strictly just people sh sh shuffling around paperwork, you know, just doing absolutely ridiculous jobs that, actually, that don't help anybody's quality of life. They don't actually promote any sort of technological change. They're just sitting there leeching. You know, you have you know, literally, I mean, and, and these are the same people that are saying capitalism is good. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you're being leeches, like to the, to the most absurd degree that you could possibly imagine. You're, you're raping people of their, uh, of their livelihood, and, and you're arguing that that's, that somehow this system is, 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 uh, is all about fairness and, and because competition is healthy, something like that. And yet the people that are making the most money are the least able to deal with technical problems and they're the least able to actually have any sort of apparent, you know, proof that they're in any way, shape, or form moral individuals. I mean, how can you be moral and be a stockbroker or, you know, somebody like Bernie Madoff, et cetera? I mean, it's not – Bernie Madoff isn't just some evil person. That's, that's – that's like general tendency that anyone is bound to eventually, you know, become if they get into that game. You know, I mean, like, he's just an example. He's not like an aberration. You know, he's, he's the norm, probably. He's, the, he's exactly where, what, the, what the tendency is. You know, and how, how can you argue that that's in any way, shape, or form logical or anything? I mean, you know, that's, and another thing, military. Uh, I think both systems, socialism, capitalism, and uh, you know, communism, or even fascism, et cetera, they all still are predicated on this kind of, you know, building up the forces and army and national defense and whatever, and it's like, that's another thing that is just totally, like, it's just laughable in, in a resource-based economy. It's like, why? Why would you want to invest uh, in, 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 in armament? I mean, you know, it's, it's just absurd. No, I agree. I agree completely. Um, there's actually still an interesting kind of lively debate going on in the chat room. There's this guy going on from Don't Know. Um, he's obviously some kind of free market advocate. Um, but basically he's selling, he's telling me the idea of Venus figured out a way to meet 100% of the consumer demand when we have an unlimited budget is comical. And I'm basically telling him the idea that you support a system that gives 95% of the resources to 5% of the population is comical. You know, I, I don't understand how anybody can think that that's the most fair way to do things. It, yeah, here's another thing. Anybody that says, all right, look, this idea of quote-unquote meeting consumer demand is a joke. 
Consumer demand in and of itself is a contrived joke. It's based on advertising. It's based on false ideas that are basically like, you know, mashed in people's heads and brains. This is what you have to be. This is what you have to buy. You have to, you have to manufacture this kind of desire. You have, to, you have to physically manufacture people's desires to want to continue to consume in order for the system to continue working. Also, it's predicated on infinite growth. You cannot have infinite growth in a finite region, in a finite realm. All right? So that's another reason why it's totally ludicrous. If you ever start having a sustainable population, which is by all means something we're going to eventually have to do, whether or not uh, you know, we do it now or later, whatever, we can't continue having exponential population growth. You can argue that you know, people on Earth right now can, uh, the Earth can definitely sustain many, many more people, billions more people. I agree with that. However, the idea is that it can't do that forever. And so at some point, you're going to have to start, you know, managing the fact that, you know, you can't have an increasing population. So what happens? Well, you have, let's say, you start getting to the point where you have a sustainable population, which is by all means a, gr a good thing in terms of resource allocation, all other stuff. But as soon as you do that, as soon as you have a, a, a population that's not growing, which is by all means in nature a good thing, it's a good thing to have a stable population not decreasing, not dying, and not, not going out of proportion like a cancer. That's a good thing. But in the, in the uh, capitalist model, that's suicide. That is suicide. It's absolute suicide to have a population that's still stagnant because that means that you can't have growth. And if you can't have growth, you can't have more jobs, you can't have more money, you can't have more fluctuation, what ends up happening? The very, very few people end up getting the massive majority of the wealth, even more so than it is right now, and then you end up having just complete you know, destruction of any, of, of any kind of, a, you know, a quality of life, et cetera. So there's so many flaws. I mean, it's just, if you look at capitalism under a, under a very short time frame, it looks extremely logical, especially if you look at it under an idealized short term. You know, then it's like, oh, that's totally logical. As soon as you draw out the window and say, wait, let's see what happens over many, many, many years, then it's like, holy crap, this is just not working. It's impossible for it to work, especially when you talk about, you know, the, the increase in population problem and all these other things. You know, the fact that it's predicated on this, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's fundamentally flawed, and it needs, we need to get away from that kind of thinking. No, I agree. And I, it's the, the, the finite thing that, uh, honestly, I mean, like the way that Allison or I think, no, Annie pointed that out in, um, in Story of Stuff, there's just no way you can argue with that. You cannot consider, you cannot continue a, a linear system on a finite planet. It isn't possible. Yeah, it's like you talk about comical or utopian. It is utopian to me. It is silly to me to think that we could ever just continue the system that is entirely dependent on never-ending upward consumption forever. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. How is that supposed to make any logical sense at all? You know, when, when does it end exactly? It, it can't. Yeah, the only, I mean, the only arguments that I've ever heard that you know, anybody actually, and again, they're not even legitimate arguments, but the only ones that I understand why people have them is because they just have a misinterpretation of genetics and of, of human evolution and so on, is this idea of human nature. You know, that's the only one, and that's, and, and as, as, you know, good as it is, that, I mean, as far as it's, it's the best one that I've heard, it's extremely low on the, on the scale of, like, legitimate concerns. I mean, people just don't basically understand what human nature is. You know, and, and that's the only thing that you can really even, you know, kind of use as a crutch to say, well, it's human nature to be competitive or something like that. No, not, not really. But, I, I mean, I understand why they have that misconception. But that's the only thing that, that is really left to, 
to, to kind of grab onto. It's like everyone is just totally trying to grab for straws. Why? Because people hate change. They hate, they hate the idea that, you know, things aren't going the right way and that you need to change. They think about it and they're just like, holy shit, you know, capitalism is terrible. This, this does need to change. I mean, the, the way things work right now, the monetary system, everything, and the, you know, the fact that we have armies and military and we spend, you know, a, a ridiculous proportion of our uh, GDP on it is, is, is absurd, but, but yet it's still here. It's happening. This is how things have been going. And so, oh, maybe there's some way that it's actually correct. You know, you start doubting yourself almost. And I see this process going through people's heads. They start thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe this stuff needs to kind of continue going the way it is. I don't know. Maybe it's natural. Maybe it's good. Maybe, maybe human nature is a certain way. And, you know, they just start having these kind of doubting moments. It's really interesting watching them think. But in reality, if you could just, as Peter mentioned in his, uh, in his talk in Iowa, he just said, look, let's pretend that we don't have the current infrastructure that exists right now. Let's just pretend that we just happen to be shot up into space somewhere and, and found a planet exactly similar to Earth just that it didn't have any infrastructure. We still had all the technology and all the know-how. We just didn't have the, you know, current uh, status quo. What would we do? You know, and, and if you ask it at that point, what would we do? It's very clear that you wouldn't have a system that exists like it does now. And I think, I think most people would agree with that. I think especially if you, if you polled them and you asked them to be honest about that, I think very few people would say, yeah, it should be just the way it is right now. I think people understand that what's going on right now is terrible. But it just seems like such a hard thing to overcome because it's, it feels like it's permanent because it's the, it's the current status quo. And nobody likes to change. You know, people really do. They, they it just, especially, I mean, even intellectually, if you've been thinking about a certain thing, let's just say you got done reading a couple books on a certain subject, um, you know, whatever it may be, like whether or not the Big Bang happened or something like that. Like you just read five books about how the Big Bang happened and, you know, this and this and this and, you know, everything is just making sense for you in terms of the model that we all originated from a certain point in, in, a, in, in the universe or whatever, in the plane, and we all came from, from that one point, and it's, the universe is ever expanding, which is, well, by all means, it's possible. But let's just say you did that, and then all of a sudden someone else handed you another book written by someone with very good credentials, and it said, the Big Bang probably never happened. Rather, it was something else, and, oh, all of a sudden you're just like, no, I don't want to believe, I don't want to even think that. I just want to throw this book away because... Now I'm, you know, it's the cognitive dissonance, you know, and I think we need to get over that. I think it's okay to just realize that things are going to change, and if they're going to change, let's at least think about the best alternative for the change. I mean, the best direction that the change could go in, you know, rather than just avoid it and just say, well, I don't really want to deal with the idea that it's going to change, and, you know, that, that's what the people at the top right now are doing. You know, if there is a quote-unquote they, you know, that's what these people are doing. They're sitting around thinking about, how is the world going to change? And they understand it can go in 10,000 different directions. Well, what are they going to do about it? Well, they're going to influence it to occur in the way they want to have it happen because they know that change is definitely going to occur and they're mature enough to understand that you know, they can influence it. And the, the only difference is that they influence it only for their own benefit or only for the benefit of a certain select few people rather than you know, for, the, for the whole of humanity. Well, um, I want to welcome Thunder to the call. Um... I'm sorry that you missed the earlier conversation, Thunder. Uh, did you have an opportunity to look at the blog post that I had made about communism? Uh, no, V, I'm sorry. I didn't get a chance to do that. I got sidetracked today. That's all right. We'll forgive you this time. But next time, there'll be serious repercussions. Oh, don't threaten me with a good time, will you? Yeah, because we have like a harsh regime here, man, you know? Yeah. No, I... <laughs> but, um... Basically, to, to sum up, uh, the major differences, you know, also for our listeners again, is that uh, the communist system had a good concept in the beginning of the idea of we're going to share everything. 
Um, in a lot of ways, I think that the system itself was kind of used as a propaganda tool to get people to, you know, bring up a revolution. And then, unfortunately, you know, just like in the colonial system, like basically the the free market, i.e., you know, constitutional republic system, started off with a good, you know, with a good basis or at least a good line, a good sales pitch. But in the end, you know, they they both ended up kind of being taken over by another elite that you know wanted more for themselves and. That tends to happen about the time they figure out, well, there's only finite resources and only so much production, so therefore, since we're already in charge, we'll make sure that we you know, come out better than everybody else. A classic example of that would be uh, Kim Jong-il in Korea. We've talked about right. that more than once. And uh, we also talked about the fact that uh, communism, uh, at least in its implementation, not necessarily in what Marx wanted, uh, ends up re leaning way too much on law to try to, you know, achieve certain social ends, um, harsh regimes that have, you know, the KGB surveillance and, you know, all sorts of stuff in order to protect themselves from their own flaws. And okay. It's, and well, it's a, go ahead. I was just going to say it sounds to me like they still never were interested in getting to the root of the problem. They just kept right. doing the patchwork, the, you know, throw them in jail and that's, there you go. That's the solution. Right. That's it's actually exactly what happened in addition to the fact that, you know, uh, at the top of the system there were still people who were, you know, just statesmen, you know, who were not really qualified to be making decisions, were making, you know, making their typical, I'm a, you know, I'm a politician, half-assed opinions and trying to use that, you know, that those half-assed opinions as rules of state. You know, uh, that's kind of a summary. Um, okay. And it, it basically now we're just we're kind of talking about that and the flaws of capitalism again because we, we had some people in the chat room who were kind of uh, heavy about that. Uh, but um, I think I heard crickets all. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if, okay, the communism started in 1917 or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if it was done, like, say, started around the 70s, do you think that the Zedegeist movement would be able to have taken place within that system? Uh, well, um, it, it largely, uh, it depends on, I guess, kind of what I'm getting at. With the Zeitgeist system, well, the Venus Project system, if that's what you mean, are you asking if, like, you know, if the communist system had started later, that would we be able to just go to these people and maybe turn them over to the way, way we think? Is that what you mean? No, um, way back then they really didn't have much for technology to actually try to use to make their situation better. That's what I'm more talking about. Mm -hmm. Go there as um, a te technological solution to their problems. I think what he's asking is if 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 that same system was tried. Uh, later on, in the, say in the 70s, like he said, uh, with the level of technology that they had then, could it have possibly worked better? Well, it certainly would have done better because more technology would have been available to them. I guess would be it would definitely be a case. But even I mean, it wasn't really that long ago that they were trying it in the Soviet Union. Um, there were other contributing factors that included the fact that you know the local capitalists that were rivals of theirs were trying to you know like the Cold War did a lot of damage. Uh, the cost of the Cold War did a lot of damage. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, I understand why, you know, they considered them a threat because some of the people who were running the communist country were pretty nuts. Uh, you know, Stalin, bad guy. Khrushchev, bad person. 
you know, these people were not the kind of people that I would want in charge of the world. And it's largely because by that point, Marx's vision had already been corrupted. Um, and so in any case, though, it looks like we're going to be having some people joining us here in Ventrilo who uh, listen to this show to debate. I'd like to go ahead and get back to Ventrilo. Thank you for coming on, however, briefly, Thunder. And, uh, no thank problem. Thanks again to everybody for tuning in tonight, and thank you to all my panelists. I really appreciate you guys. You really help make B-Radio what it is. Um, and uh, I'm going to be doing some more shows here now that I have some more good topics. Uh, upon Paradigm's insistence, I'm going to be doing a show based on the, the real scariness of the, the sheeple effect. Um, and... Uh, Sorry about that. I had to respond to somebody in our chat who said, B-Radio, which one are you in Ventrilo? I'm, I don't know. I'm the, I think I'm in the right one right now. If any of you guys are happen to be in our chat room right now, make sure that this guy gets to Ventrilo so we can talk to him. But um, make sure he knows what he's doing. But anyway, uh, the next, uh, is what I meant is about the sheeple effect is like recently I put a blog post up. If you guys saw it, I'll probably be doing a lot more about it than this. But like it was about a couple of videos that I had found. One of them was about this people who were like people who were sitting outside you know, in the cold, waiting to get in to meet Sarah Palin. You know, they were such huge supporters of Sarah Palin, and they had no frickin' idea who she really was. This guy went around on the microphone asking them why they supported her, and she had no, they had no clue. You asked them what her foreign policy was, or economic policies, they didn't know. Um, um, basically, so the next show that I'm going to want to do is basically going to be about how asleep people really are. I'll probably be playing excerpts of these videos, some audio clips of those. I'll have panelists on so that we can talk about this because we're talking about something serious here. And it's another one of the reasons why the, the Venus Project is focusing on movies rather than focusing on buildings is that these are the average citizens. They're not going to even care if we build an experimental city. Um, but they would watch a major motion picture. <laughs> so... In any case, um, I will talk to you guys all later. Everybody say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Peace. Thanks again for tuning into this edition of E-Radio.